Psalm 34 as we continue our series, Songs for Our Heart. And I don't know about you all, but Psalm 34 particularly spoke to me throughout this week. So I've entitled my message, Escaping Your Cave of Fear, Psalm 34. This psalm is an acrostic psalm written by David. And an acrostic psalm, what it is, is it's a psalm that uses every letter of the Hebrew alphabet from A to Z. So this is kind of like the A to Z of escaping your cave of fear. Heavenly Father, we come before you. And Lord, as we turn to your word and as we go to this, this psalm that was penned by your servant David, um, Lord, help us to glean the wisdom from it. Help us to glean the experience from it, Father God. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us from these words and teach us more about you, Father God. Lord, um, and how we can hang on to you, Lord, to find that strength that we need, especially in those tough times of our life, those times that cause us to turn away, that cause us to retreat, that cause us to isolate, that cause us to pull back, Father God, because we're afraid, afraid of getting hurt, afraid of losing, afraid of trying, afraid of failing, um, whatever it is, Father God. Lord, speak to us here and, and help us to, to escape from our cave of whatever it is that we're afraid of, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, this psalm has got a little italics title that goes with it. It says, Concerning David, when he pretended to be insane in the presence of Abimelech, who drove him out and he departed. You see, David pretended to be insane in the presence of Abimelech, king of the Philistines. He drove him out and he departed. And when he departed from the Philistine, from the city of Gath, he went to the cave of Adullam. And we pick that up in 1 Samuel chapter 21. 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 10, it says, David fled that day from Saul's presence and he went to King Achish of Gath. And now, don't get confused here. It's Abimelech. His real name is Achish. Abimelech is kind of like a title. It's like Herod. It's like Caesar. It's a title. And that was the title that the Philistine kings had. It says, but Achish's servants said to him, isn't this David the king of the land? Don't they sing about him during their dances? Saul has killed his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. David took this to heart and became very afraid of King Achish of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. He acted like a madman around him, scribbling on the doors of the city gate and letting the saliva run down his beard. Look, you can see this man is crazy, Achish said to his servants. Why did you bring him to me? Do I have such a shortage of crazy people that you brought this one to act crazy around me? Is this one going to come into my house? Pick up at the next chapter. It says, David left Gath and took refuge in the cave of Adullam. And it says, when David's brothers and his fathers and his whole family heard, they went down and joined him there. In addition, every man who was desperate, in debt, discontented, rallied around them and he became their leader, about 400 men. This was uh, David and his merry men. 400 guys that went around him as he lived in the wilderness. But I want us to pay attention that they all met in that cave 
They all went down there. David was the first one there, and then David's family met him there. And then every man who was desperate, in debt, discontented, all rallied around him there. And this, this speaks to where people retreat to when faced with troubles. Prior to this, David having fled from Saul, he went to the priest Ahimelech at Nob and he got food and he took with him the sword of Goliath. And fleeing from Saul, David said, it's a good idea that I go to Gath. I'm going to go to Gath. They won't know me there. But he also took with him the sword of Goliath, hoping to be safe there. And upon arrival, the king's servants recognized him, possibly because of the sword that he carried belonged to Goliath, who was from Gath. David himself said there is none like it. In 1 Samuel 21, 9, it says, I will bless the Lord at all times. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't put this... Samuel, 1 Samuel 21, verse 9, it says, The priest replied, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine whom you killed in the valley of Elah, is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want to take it for yourself, then take it. There isn't another one here. There's none like it, David said. Give it to me. It's a very recognizable sword. The songs that they sung of David that drove Saul to despise David were known by the Philistines also. It's a very popular tune. It, number one on the world's hits chart. Hearing the people talk of him, David became fearful in the land of the Philistines. You see these choices that David's making is because he's acting out of fear. He feared Saul coming after him. So he said, I'm going to flee to Gath and I'm going to do it with Goliath's sword and I'll be safe there. Then the people there recognize him for some odd reason because he's carrying the sword of Goliath and they know the songs about him. So he decides, he says, you know what? I'm just going to pretend to be insane. That's how I'll feel safe here. So he acted like a madman, letting the saliva run down his beard. The king thought he was a madman. He said, I have no need for a crazy. He's like, don't I have enough crazy people around me already? You bring me another one. So he said, get him out of here. And so David then leaving Gath, he took refuge in the cave of Adullam. You see, Fear of Saul brought David to the Philistine city. Fear of the Philistines drove David to pretend to be insane and to flee to the cave of Adullam. When he got to the cave, David's family heard he was there and they came and joined him in addition to every other person that was desperate, in debt, discontent, and they all came around him. And maybe that speaks of you today. Maybe you're discontent, maybe you're disappointed, maybe you're struggling, maybe you're in debt, maybe you're in over your head, you're feeling overwhelmed underwater. And so you're in this cave. And I, I grew up reading um, this uh, comic, I believe it was Family Circus, and, and she loved to retreat to her cave of resentment because she wasn't ready to say sorry. She wasn't ready to fix the problem. She wanted to stew in her feelings and it would always draw it like in this cave. And, and we do that. We withdraw inside ourselves into our cave, whatever that cave is. For some, it's a cave of fear because they don't want to deal with whatever it is that they're going through. Others, it's a cave of isolation saying, I don't deserve to get out of this. Whatever it is, whatever's brought you to that cave, 
You call it concern, but that concern has become a cocoon and it forbids you from living beyond your cave. May this psalm be not only inspirational tonight, but instructional as well for how we escape out of our cave. Starting in verse 1 of 34, David pens, he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will boast in the Lord. The humble will hear and be glad. Proclaim the Lord's greatness with me. Let's exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and rescued me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant with joy. Their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the person who takes refuge in him. You who are his holy ones, fear the Lord, for those who fear him lack nothing. Young lions lack food and go hungry, but those who seek the Lord will not lack any good thing. Come, children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is someone who desires life, loving a long life to enjoy what is good. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceitful speech. Turn away from evil and do what is good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry for help. The face of the Lord is set against those who do what is evil to remove all memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears them from the earth. He rescues them from all their trouble. The Lord is near the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. One who is righteous has many adversities, but the Lord rescues him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil brings death to the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be punished. The Lord redeems the life of his servants and all who take refuge in him will not be punished. So there's several things that we can do to escape that cave, to get out of that thing where we're drawn within ourselves because of whatever circumstances within life have pushed us there. The first thing that we can do is sing praises of the Lord. Whenever you're feeling trapped, whenever you're feeling imprisoned by what you're going through, you have to free your heart to sing the praises of the Lord. And that's a choice that we have to do. David starts off, he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. He says, I will boast in the Lord, and the humble will hear and be glad. And then he enjoins, he says, proclaim the Lord's greatness with me. Let's exalt his name together. See, I think when David finally got to that cave and he had a chance to sit down and, and actually pause. That's what a lot of us fail to do when trouble hits. We don't just like stop and pause. We instantly go into, I can fix this, or I can maintain this. I can keep spinning all those plates. You ever seen that, that where they're spinning the plates on the things and he has to keep going around spinning the plates, keep them from falling? Going around, I can keep it up. I can keep it up. But when David sat down in the cave, he realized 
I wasn't saved because of my cleverness. I made a stupid decision to pick up the sword of Goliath and go to Gath. That was dumb. And he realized that it was fear fleeing from Saul that brought him on the road to Gath to begin with. And then David in the cave, he starts considering these events and he begins to write. He says, I'm going to bless the Lord at all times. That word bless is the Hebrew word barak. And it can be translated bless or praise. And it has the sense of bowing the knee in worship. And David continues on and he says, and his praise will always be on my lips. He says, I will always be ready and I will always be willing to praise him. You see, David is declaring something that has to be true in the heart. That he will worship and sing praises, not just in the good times, not just in the easy times, but in all times. And we need to, we need to pick that up. We need, we need to hold on to that. We need to understand that our God can be worshipped at any and all times. When we're hurting, we can praise the Lord and find strength. You see, before you scoff and say, oh, that's easy. David was king. He had it made. He was king. He had, he had a palace. He lived in a palace. Have you seen where I live? His budget far exceeds mine. Have you seen my budget? Remember the context of the psalm. No one was probably in a more fearful or perilous situation than David was when he penned these words. Saul was after him, but you have to understand, Saul was the recognized king among the people of Israel. David went to a, a, a Himalach to get food. His mere visiting the Himalach, Ahimelech was murdered later, along with all the priests in the temple. Because there was somebody who saw David. David wasn't safe anywhere he went. Spurgeon spoke wisely when he said, he who praises God for blessings will always have blessings for which to praise God. Now our situation tends to throw shade on our blessings. What we once saw as a great thing, all of a sudden when it becomes a problem, we're like, oh, I don't like that anymore. How many of us prayed to God? hey, Lord, I, I, I need to get a car. I, I really need help getting a car. And then we get that car. And the first time it breaks down, gosh, what a piece of junk. Thanks, Lord. Or our house, you know, houses require maintenance. The yard, other stuff, never ending. What we once desired so hard, change of perspective, takes a blessing and makes it more of a curse against us. But if we choose and we look at everything as a blessing from God, we always have blessings from God to be praising him for. And so David then, then goes on, he says, I'm going to boast in the Lord. When life is not going well, we have nothing to boast in ourselves, right? We, we come to the realization, wait a minute, I'm not in control. I'm not the big shot I thought I was. I'm, I'm not on this, like, oh, nothing can touch me here. I'm just a mere mortal. It's God who's in heaven. God who's in control. I'm going to boast in the Lord. And you know what's cool about when we start boasting in the Lord? 
Those who are also humble in heart, humble in circumstance, humble in the world, they're going to hear it and they're going to be glad in hearing that the Lord is being boasted. You know why? Because sometimes in our troubles, when we're humbled, we can finally see, oh, God is good. God is great. We're glad now because there's somebody we can call out to. When we put ourselves equal with God, we're like, hmm, why would I call God? He could do the same stuff I can do. And we, we tend to discount him because we put ourselves equal with him and we need to bring ourselves back down. And so David realizes that he needs to lift up the Lord and not himself. Because left to his own devices, David becomes a mad drooling man. And we all would do the same when left to ourselves. The humble are the ones who realize that there's nothing glorifying about themselves. But when you lift up the Lord, you realize there's much to praise and proclaim with him. And so David proclaims his greatness. And and he says, proclaim his greatness with me. Let's exalt him together. And when it comes to fear, when it comes to our troubles, when it comes to where we're at in life, have you ever noticed that when you share with somebody where you're at, you bring them down that path with you? If you're discontent and discouraged, you can discourage everybody around you. Others become fearful. We, we saw it happen a couple years ago in the pandemic. Everybody became fearful, and the more fear that was produced, the more people that became fearful, the more that fear spread, and the more that fear spread, the more that there was hopelessness. It wasn't until people started stepping out in faith and exercising faith that we realized that faith is actually more contagious than fear. When we proclaim our faith as we worship and praise the Lord and we proclaim his greatness, we strengthen the faith of those around us. When we enjoin others to praise with us, it helps our praise. You see, as God's people sing God's praises and proclaim his greatness and exalt him as we should, our worship begins to push back our fear because we're beginning to put God where he belongs. So we have to sing praises to the Lord. But in order to sing praises to the Lord, we also have to look unto the Lord. We have to look unto the Lord. You see in verse four, David says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and he rescued me from all my fears. He says, those who look to him are radiant with joy. You see, those who look to the Lord are radiant with joy. They can sing his praises. They can praise his name. Their faces will never be ashamed. He says, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. He says that the Lord, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he rescues them. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the person who takes refuge in him. He said, you who are his holy ones, fear the Lord. For those who fear him lack nothing. Young lions lack food and go hungry. But those who, who seek the Lord will not lack any good thing. Underline that word good in there. It doesn't say you won't lack anything. You will not lack any good thing. So when David does sing, what does David sing? He sings of God being the answer he needed. 
David says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and he rescued me from all my fears. You see, when we invite the Lord in, he pushes out the fear. David didn't find rescue in his own answers. He didn't say, when I figure this out, then I'll be okay. It's when he said, I'm going to seek the Lord. I'm going to look to the Lord. That's when he was rescued from his fears. If we want to escape our fears, if we want to be rescued from our fears, we have to stop looking, what can I do? What can Michael do to fix his issues, this situation, to get out of it? And instead going, I need to look to somebody who's better than me, far above me, has control over the whole thing. My brothers and sisters in Christ, seek the Lord and he will rescue you from all your fears. David says, all who look at the Lord are radiant with joy. Their faces will never be ashamed. You see, those who look and direct their gaze to the Lord and put their attention on the Lord are those who are putting their faith in the Lord. They turn and they look to the Lord because that's where they know that their answer is going to come from. That's where they know their help is going to come from. That's where they know they need to go. Those in times of trouble, confusion, pain, worry, stress, fear, etc. If they look to the Lord, they will become radiant with joy. Shining and exuding a sense of joy. It has this overall sense of well-being. Not overall sense of everything's perfect again. It's an overall sense that everything's going to be okay. Because I'm with the one who makes everything all okay. David refers to himself as a poor man. It's interesting when you look at what that word poor man actually means. He's not, ta- he, he's not talking about someone who's lowly enough to have to beg. But it's one who has little. He says, I have little to offer. I'm, I'm not so poor that I have to beg. But I'm so poor I have nothing to offer to get me out of this. He says, as a poor man, he cried out to the Lord and the Lord heard him and saved him from his troubles. And if the Lord saved him from all his troubles, certainly he can and he could and he would do the same for all others who followed that. Who wouldn't look to the Lord knowing that he's gonna answer and that he's gonna save and that he's gonna save from all one's troubles? Who wouldn't look to the Lord if they knew that? That's why we got to sing about it. That's why we got to praise about it. That's why we have to go there because there are some who don't know that the Lord will do that. And David writes, he says, the angel of the Lord encamps around all those who fear him and he rescues them. And David is using military imagery that he's familiar with as he envisions the Lord's divine protection. But you know what else? That phrase, angel of the Lord, speaks of a Christophany. It speaks of the, the angel of the Lord. It's, a, it's another way of speaking of Christ before he was incarnate. We on this side of the cross know the same thing. Christ is with us. He encamps around us. He has told us that he holds us in his hand and that there's none strong enough to snatch us out of his hand. By none, he means not even yourself. He says, not death, not sin, not anything can snatch us out of his hand. And so then David writes a challenge to those who would read and hear this psalm and, and would see these praises. He says, the Lord saves all who call out and cry out to him. And so David calls out for people, test this. 
That's what he means when he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Try it out. But he's not saying just believe that the Lord is good. He's saying test that the Lord is good. Taste, experience his goodness for yourself. Just determine on your own if he's good or not. Find out for yourself. Because David's tasted the Lord's goodness. But we're all called to come and taste of the goodness of the Lord. To see that he is good. And the taste, is it's not suggesting that it's just a sip or a nibble. Like, that's all you get. You just get a taste just a little bit. It implies feed on the Lord. Devour his word. Experience all that he has for you. You see, those who look to the Lord discover that not only does he save from times in our life, but that he indeed satisfies for all our life. We may taste of the Lord in our troubles, but we continue to feast on the Lord for the rest of our life because he satisfies. How happy is the one who takes refuge in him. David goes on, he says, you who are his holy ones, fear the Lord. And the promise is that those who fear the Lord lack nothing. And it doesn't just mean lacks nothing, but has no lack of needs. Anything that you need, you will not find lacking. You will not lack any of the necessary things. And he puts it to an uh, illustration. Young lions, as strong and as ferocious as they are, they sometimes lack food. They go hungry. They starve for all their strength, for all their growling and roaring and all their ferocity. They have a severe want. This kind of points to what Jesus said in Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. We need to understand, we need to know when it says you who are his holy ones, you who are his, you who are his set apart people, you who are his chosen, you who are his who he's adopted, you who are his through Christ Jesus. Fear the Lord and the promise is you will lack nothing. Psalm 84, uh, 11 says, for the Lord is a sun and shield. The Lord grants favor and honor, and he does not withhold the good from those who live with integrity. The Lord will withhold nothing good from you as you live with integrity. Those who seek the Lord will not lack any good thing. If you are lacking anything, if you find yourself lacking anything, understand this, it is not good. Like, oh, I really wanted that promotion at work. It's not good. I really wanted to win the Powerball last week when it hit a billion dollars. That's not good. Those who fear the Lord need fear nothing else, for the fear of the Lord drives out all other fear. And so then David enjoins us 
learn the fear of the Lord. Learn the fear of the Lord. He says in verse 11, he says, come children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who's someone who desires life, loving a long life to enjoy what is good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceitful speech. Turn away from evil and do what is good. Seek peace and pursue it. You see, David goes on from praise to practical exhortation and instruction. A, pub, uh, a move from public praise to a type of preaching. And the instruction that David is laying out is possibly a missing factor from those folks' religious life. The instruction is on how to have a fear of the Lord. And David is referring to those who need instruction on fearing the Lord. And he calls them children. And this is what I gather from that, is that without a fear of the Lord, one is immature in their walk with the Lord. You see, it's the mature who know how to fear the Lord. So if you're saying, I want to be mature in the Lord, we have to learn how to fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is not ill-defined. It's not an elusive concept. It's not this weird um, abstract idea, but it's actually one that can be instructed and known. The fear of the Lord is not merely academic either. It's worked out practically. In other words, the fear of the Lord, it's not merely something to learn, but it must be lived. Maybe that sounds familiar to something James said in his epistle. In James chapter 2, verse 14, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? And then he said, In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you my faith by my works. What does that say? We can't just claim to fear the Lord. When we fear the Lord, we live a certain way that shows that we actually fear the Lord, that we reverence the Lord, that we honor the Lord. And here's the practical ways in which fear of the Lord is being manifested as David is teaching it. Fear of the Lord manifests when we desire what is good. When we desire what is good, that means what is holy, what is righteous, what is pure, that which is good. When we have a fear of the Lord, we have a desire to love a life that is full and fulfilling. We don't want to waste our life. A fear of the Lord tells us that we have to give an account for our life. This is the abundant life that Christ talked about, not the word of faith teachers speak of. You see, in John 10, 10, Jesus... I'm losing all my scriptures out of here. Something happens when I export it, I think, because it's happened to me more than once. John 10, 10 says, a thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. He says, I've come so that they may have life and have it in abundance or have it to the fullest. Not the fullest bank account, not the fullest garage, the fullest and eternal value. 
The abundant life has little to do with possessions, has nothing to do with status, and absolutely nothing to do with fame. Here's what it has to do with. Character, faith, and a desire to honor the Lord. The one who seeks the Lord and wants nothing less than what he wants for their life is the one who fears the Lord. They live according to the I don't know why I keep going there. Psalm 34, 37, verse 4. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you your heart's desires. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you your heart's desires. The fear of the Lord also results in certain things. Number one, it, the result of fear of the Lord is self-control over our tongue and our lips specifically our speech. Now I can go to the next one. One who has a healthy fear of the Lord is mindful over the words they speak because they fear that which the Lord promised that one day we give an account for every careless word spoken. They fear the, the wisdom of the Lord. In Proverbs it says, life and death are in the tongue and the one who loves it eats of its fruit. If we can control the tongue, we can control the body, as James says in James 3. Proverbs 21, 23. Oh, look, it's out of order. There it is. All right, Proverbs 21, 23. The one who guards his mouth and tongue keeps himself out of trouble. The one who has a fear of the Lord is the one who prays as the psalmist does in Psalm 141. Lord, set up a guard for my mouth. Keep watch at the door of my lips. Do not let my heart turn to evil, to any evil thing or perform wicked acts with evildoers. Do not let me feast on their delicacies. The one who fears the Lord desires to please the Lord and to be with the Lord and to not do anything to upset the Lord. The result of one who fears the Lord is that they would turn from evil, doing what is good, and they would seek peace and pursue it. This means abandoning sin once and for all. Not that we stop sinning, but that we no longer choose sin. Unfortunately, there are lots of other ways to sin, without actually choosing it. And then there's times where we are weak and we will choose the sin. But we desire not to. We desire to do good as God gives strength, as God gives an opportunity. We, we are to desire to be a peacemaker. Peacemaker, not pacemaker. Peacemaker, not a troublemaker. However, that does not mean that we seek peace at any price. Peace depends upon purity. But we do make every effort not to make enemies. As much as it is in you, live peaceably with all men, as Paul instructs. To pursue peace means that we have to work at it. Hey, guess what? You can't just be like, hey, I choose peace. 
and it just happens. Much to my dismay, I actually have to act and work towards being peaceful. I'm a very ornery kind of guy. I don't know if you knew that or not. I have a little bit of a rebellious side, and I have to work at that in order to be a peacemaker. I have to remember, the fear of the Lord is my desire. I would rather please him than fulfill my own selfish desires. And so what we learn then is that the fear of the Lord, it's not ethereal. It's not just a merely high academic matter. The fear of the Lord is acting consistently with God's character and with his commands as we claim to follow him. It means we forsake deception, meaning we have to speak truthfully. It means that we cease pursuing evil and instead we pursue peace. You see, the fear of the Lord not only involves doctrine, but the implementation of it in your life. Let me sum it up this way. The fear of the Lord demands a response in how we live. If you do not change the way you live, you do not fear the Lord. When we learn to fear the Lord, we begin to understand that we can take refuge in the Lord. Verse 15, David writes, he says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their cry for help. The face of the Lord is set against those who do what is evil to remove all memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears and rescues them from all their troubles. The Lord is near the brokenhearted. He saves those crushed in spirit. One who is righteous has many adversities, but the Lord rescues him from them all. He protects all his bones and not one of them is broken. Evil brings death to the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be punished. The Lord redeems the life of his servants, and all who take refuge in him will not be punished. The basis by which David is encouraging his readers and us to take refuge in the Lord is through the basis of relationship. See that in these words. That he's written. In verses 15 to 18, David describes the relationship of the Lord to those who need refuge. Understand this. Here's the relationship of the Lord to those who need refuge. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry for help. We don't have to fear knowing that the Lord has his eyes on us. He sees us. He sees the difficulties that we're walking through, the difficulties that we're enduring. He sees our troubles and our affliction. But what's more is not only that he sees it, but it says his ears are open to hearing our cry for help. So in those times where we're crying out because we have nowhere else to go, we don't have to fear that the Lord is like, busy, uninterested, thinks that you're just making a big deal out of nothing. 
but his ears are open to hearing the cry for help. We don't have to fear that he can't hear or worse, that he won't hear. God is actively listening for the cry upon which to act. The face of the Lord on top of that is against those who do evil. His desire is to remove all memory of them from the earth. And see, the relationship with the Lord with those who seek refuge is he's for the righteous and against the evil. If we have a fear of the Lord, we're walking that righteous path. We don't have to we don't have to fear that. We can call out to the Lord for refuge because we are in the area of righteousness. We are walking righteously and he is on that side. The righteous cry out and he rescues them from all their troubles. But also know this, the Lord is near the brokenhearted. It's not just when evil's against you. Jesus promised us that in this world, we're going to have troubles, we're going to have trials, we're going to have tribulation, that the world's going to hate us because it hated him. There's evil in this world. There's sin in this world. This world's falling apart, and therefore, there, we should expect to see things falling apart in this world. But the Lord is near the brokenhearted. He's rescuing, or he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Maybe you've had one of those weeks where it's like one thing after another just weighs down and you just feel the weight upon your spirit. And you're like, there's no, there's no way. Like, I, I feel suffocated right now. He promises to save those who are crushed in spirit. Two things are worth taking note from this revelation of the Lord's relationship to the righteous, though. Number one, Nowhere in this psalm, in fact, nowhere in the word of God, is it suggested that the righteous life of faith and obedience exempts you from trouble. But God also promises that the righteous can call on him in those troubles. You see, troubles fall on both the evil and the righteous. It happens that way. Tragedy hits, troubles come, the storms come to both equally. But you know what? God's promise is only for the righteous that he rescues them. You have someone to call out to if you are in the camp of the righteous. The evil have no one to call on. In fact, they could try calling on the Lord, but he's against them. David goes on, he says, one who is righteous has many adversities. Other translations may say he has many adversaries. Just for being righteous. So when you're going, this isn't fair. I gave my life to God. I'm, I'm living for God. I'm doing this. It's hard enough. But then these things come against me. That's not fair. Remember, Abel was killed by Cain for no other reason than he was accepted by God. Jesus had many adversities. Jesus had many adversaries. He was the righteous son of God who lived perfectly. Never sinned against anybody. 
And yet people murdered him in the most heinous way possible. But I want you to know this. Jesus died on the cross, but the Lord God rescued him. The Lord God raised him from the dead. Our enemies may come against us. This life may come against us. It may look like they've won because maybe we died. Maybe we've been defeated in that sense. But the Lord has rescued us because if you die in the Lord Jesus Christ, yet you shall live. That's the promise that Jesus himself made. You see, the assurance is that no one who trusts in the Lord is lost. Now we have a choice. And that choice is this. We can let our circumstances drive us into our cave of despair, our cave of anger, our cave of fear. Or we can learn to let our circumstances drive us to our knees in praise and worship choosing to praise God in all situations. You see, there were two guys in Acts who were sharing the gospel. And just for sharing the gospel, they were brought before the chief magistrates and they said, these men are seriously disturbing our city. How dare they preach the gospel? They're Jews and they're promoting customs that are not legal for us as Romans to adopt or practice. The crowd decides to join in the attack against them. Now now they got the whole crowd against them and the chief magistrates strip off their clothes and beat them with rods. And after they severely flogged them, they threw them in jail and they ordered the jailer to guard them carefully and receiving such an order, he put them into the innermost part of the prison and secured their feet in the stocks. You might be going, man, if that was me, I'd be the last time I share the gospel. I try to live for God and look at what it got me. But it continues on. It says about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And it says that there was a violent earthquake and the foundations of the jail were shaken and all the doors were open and everybody's chains came loose and the guard was about to kill himself. Because if you lose any prisoners, you pay with your own life. And Paul called out and said, no, we're all still here. Don't worry. Even in our prisons and our dungeons, we can praise the Lord. You see, when we choose to praise is when our chains are set loose. Now, those who are exhorted to taste and see that the Lord is good in verse 8, they're co-worshippers with David, right? They're they're already there with him. They're Israelites who have come, and he's enjoined them to worship with him. They've come to worship God. They're not pagans. They're not apathetic with regard to their attendance for worship. The blessings which they're encouraged to experience are those which David himself has experienced. We can safely infer that those that David is challenging and exhorting have not and did not, however, experience the fullest blessings of God. Why would he exhort others to experience what they already possess? Now, if the Israelites of David's day 
were devout enough to regularly worship, why did they need to be encouraged to taste and experience the goodness of God? I think that they are just like the people that you find in the church today. And going through all the rituals of worship, but failing to have the relationship with God that enables them to personally experience the provision and protection of God that David had come to know. We must not only look to God, but we have to taste for ourselves to see and experientially know God's goodness. And the Lord knows that. That might be why he allows us to go through a lot of the things that he allows us to go through is because he wants us to taste and experience his goodness. You can't learn that if everything's all gravy all the time. And again, the fear of the Lord is a necessity in our life. But the fear of the Lord is not merely learned. It has to be lived out practically. You have to live as one who fears the Lord. Know that the Lord is open and listening and acting on behalf of the righteous. Nothing exempts the righteous from troubles, but the Lord promises to rescue the righteous and save the crushed in spirit. You see, God redeemed David just as he had redeemed Israel from Egypt. And the promise for us today is that he is able to redeem us also from our troubles. That's a hard thing to hold on to, right? He's promised to redeem us from our troubles. If we experience hardship for a time, and then we see hardship go away, can we not still say that we've been delivered or rescued? Sometimes God delivers us by keeping us from any real harm. Other times he allows us to be bruised by afflictions. He allows us to go through the beatings of that, but you know what? He never allows us to be broken. He never allows us to be destroyed totally. Charles Spurgeon writes, he says, David had come off with kicks and cuffs, but no broken bones. No substantial injury occurs to the saints. Their real self is safe. They may have flesh wounds, but no part of the essential fabric of their beings shall be broken. You see, we can escape our cave by following David's lead that we find here in Psalm 34. But we have to understand, we're, we're quite obviously mistaken if we come to expect complete and total deliverance in this life. Because the promise is, is that deliverance awaits the life to come. That's the glory that we hold on to. That's the hope that we look forward to. We, we await the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For those of us that don't know Christ, though, know what this is teaching. The righteous are delivered. The wicked are desolate but the choice is yours. There's only one who rescues and you have to seek him. You have to come to him. You have to taste and see that he's good. 
It was said of Christ when he was on the cross that he had died before the, the sun was coming down because when the sun was coming down, the guards went up and, and they started breaking the legs of the other criminals so that they would die faster. And when it says when they came before Christ, they looked and they saw that he had already died. And instead of breaking his legs, they thrust a spear through his side so that this prophecy and this psalm could be fulfilled that not one of his bones would be broken to show that God fulfills his promise that he will rescue. He provided that way of rescue through Christ on that cross that any who would believe in him and call upon his name would be saved from our greatest adversary, sin and death. And when Christ rose again on that third day, that was the promise of God that all who are in Christ, so too shall one day rise again with him. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your words in this psalm, Father God. We thank you for the words that you gave David to speak. And Lord, I just pray that like David, maybe we're going through something. And what seemed like a right action for us, maybe we're finding out, maybe we got ourselves into a little bit more trouble or, or we found ourselves in a, in, in a worse situation. And now we've retreated again, Father God. And Lord, I pray that in that retreat that we would take that time and that we would consider you, that we would seek you, Father God, that we would praise you and bless you, that we would reorient ourselves to fear you, Father God, to look to you for redemption, for salvation from all the troubles that we face, Father God. Lord, that we would trust in you and find our refuge in you, not in our own cleverness, not in our own ways, not in our own paths, but Father, solely by trust in you. Lord, I pray that you would continue to gather us together as your people. Help us to join together, Father God. And Lord, as we come to close right now, I just pray that we would come together and that we would willfully and, and joyfully choose to praise your name, Father God. And as we come together to praise your name, that our faith would become contagious for one another, Lord. And that you would be glorified, for you deserve to be exalted throughout all the earth. In Jesus' name, amen.